Welcome to Watershed's October podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. And my name is Tara Judah and I'm the cinema producer here at Watershed. So one of the key films for me that's opened this month at Watershed is a film, Utoya, from Norway, which I saw at the Berlin Film Festival earlier this year. And I do think it's quite an extraordinary film. Uh, it's about the uh, massacre on that island of the same name, Utoya, which happened in 2011. Um, terrible um, incident, tragedy, where um, young people were on a, a, a holiday camp organised by the Norwegian Labour Party. Um, this is something that happens every year. It's a big tradition in Norway where young people are, um, you know, going to summer camp. There's discussion about life, politics, and these these people become future, actually become future leaders in 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 Norway. Um, big tradition within the country. And in 2011, uh, a bomb went off in the, in Oslo, the capital. Everybody thought terrorist attack, um, in the way that terrorism was going to cross was going to cross Europe. Uh, but then the focus was on the island of Utoya, where a, a, a gunman was picking off, seemed to be a policeman, was picking off um, some of the young people and killing at, at random. A terrible tragedy um, of which the country, and it was Anders Breivik, who's a far-right um, sympathiser, Norwegian, white, um, and this was a political terrorist um, act. A shocking, absolutely shocking event. Now, one of the things about the film being on, well, one of the things about the film being made is, and the, the journalists in Berlin were saying is, is it too soon? You know, is, the bigger question before even going to see the film was, is it too soon to make a film about such a, a, a tragedy that it's still in the consciousness of people and they're still grieving and people are still dealing with the trauma of it? So it, that was the first question. And then the second is, is well, what, what, you know, how, how, as a filmmaker, how do you make a film about it? Um, because, you know, filmmaking, as we know, becomes about mythologising or, you know, telling stories in particular ways and identifying with. Um, and then you also find out that Paul Greengrass is making a film and you think, oh, so what, everybody's starting to make films about this, this subject matter. How did, how did that happen? But going back to this film, which is made by Eric Pop. Um, a documentary filmmaker, a Norwegian documentary filmmaker. So I went to see it, and I was I was really overwhelmed by the film um, as a viewer, and actually quite I think quite traumatised myself um, by by watching it. And, and the reason being is it's done mainly completely, uh, except for the beginning, which sets up the Oslo bombing. It's in one single take for 72 minutes, which was the length of time that um, he was he was shooting at the kids. And and it, it, the single take um, has an extraordinary impact, which just, as a viewer, sucks you into the world. You become part of this world of these kids going from complete abandoned enjoyment in a, a, in, a, in a summer camp to what the hell is going on, to then beginning to see that people have been, and then the trauma that then you know, unfolds over that period of time. And as I say, I just, I, I really found myself, it had a huge impact, but I thought this was a really, really important film. That, that, you know, so from February earlier this year, thinking to myself, we must show this film. Now, I think there's all sorts of discussions and, you know, that you, you can have about it, but that was the immediate um, impact uh, for me. 
Yeah, I'm not actually quite so keen on this film as you are, although I absolutely agree with the reasons for it being shown and for it being seen. Um, and I think that that is the more compelling part of the argument to me than whether or not the film succeeds at what it's trying to achieve. So, I mean, I think the kind of important uh, points to note for me were things like knowing that many of the survivors of this incident really wanted this film to be made, that some of them actually acted as advisors on the film, so there was a participatory element. It's not as if this particular film was kind of made in a vacuum, um, Eric Pop just deciding to do something. Absolutely not. He completely was consulting with people who had survived and that they, there was a really compelling argument from them to make the film that they really wanted to deal with this culturally um, and 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 collectively. So there was a public memorial that was planned, you know, in Norway that was banned after complaints. So they hadn't had an opportunity to really deal with this grievance, this national grievance. Um, and I actually think that's probably one of the most compelling reasons to go see it. But also just the fact that Eric Pop has been a, a war photographer, he's worked in Afghanistan, he kind of understands the sensitivity of those images. So I think that this film's been made in good faith, if I could say it that way. I mm -hmm. think that, you know, everything that's been brought to this film has been with the intention not of traumatising the audience, although Pop does say that, you know, if it doesn't hurt to watch the movie, then it's too late. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, it has to kind of be part of the healing processes that it is difficult to watch. But that this isn't really made as a shock on the audience. It's not intended to be something that just... Um, shocks you. It's intended to elicit compassion from you, um, to give you a sense of the chaoticness of what was going on on the island. So what that kind of 72 minutes out of the 90 minute runtime continuous take does is that it gives you a sense of how disassociating everything that was going on. They had no idea who was shooting at them, from where, how long this was going to go on for, whether or not any of the authorities knew, whether or not anyone on the mainland was well, is, aware of what was going on. Is that complete chaos in terms of you do not know what's, which one suspects in any tragic incident that, that, that happens, if you think about Bataclan, if you think about Ariane uh, Grande concert, mm -hmm. there is, a, there is a, a, a spectrum of time where you simply are trying to make sense of it, you don't know what's going on, and then you begin to piece together. And I think the, the film does capture that sense of, of the transition uh, really brilliantly. And they also um, went to great lengths to make sure that everybody working on the film was safe, so there were kind of counsellors on hand for all of the cast and crew. The lead actress uh, who, who's in this film, Andrea Benson, who plays Kaya, she had eight auditions and a psychiatric evaluation before she was cast mm. in this movie. Um, they didn't take the subject matter lightly. I think that, you know, there's sort of like, there was a lot of consideration for the implications of what it would be like to make this movie, how that would impact how that would impact on the people in the film who were making it and also on the audience that it then extends to. Um, and I think that that comes under the banner of kind of like, you know, is this a responsible film or not? Well, I would say I think the, certainly the intention and the setup of it is responsible. Now, whether or not as a viewer we find it differently traumatic or impacting, that, that you know, that's something that will happen in the auditorium space. I actually didn't find it quite as, um, I guess, traumatic as I had been prepared for, probably mm. because of the hype out of Berlin and I saw it after that. Um, I think also it's worth saying that the potency of this film showing in Berlin was just days after another mass shooting in the US. Um, so 
it, it was kind of also heightened by what was mm. happening in the news at the time. This film has also then the, the other kind of extension is to think about um, some of the political implications, which I also think are really important at this time. So we, we don't focus on the killer in this film, which I think is really great and really important, and I think that is also, again, responsible. But we're, we're thinking about the fact that this, this killer was somebody who was anti-Islam, anti-feminism, anti-Marxism, that, you know, he'd written this manifesto, this insane manifesto, 2083, a European Declaration of Independence. This does come around the time that on our own shores we're thinking about, an, you know, a kind of increase in um, turning backs on refugees, on Brexit, on all these kind of topical issues, that there is certainly a kind of wider implication of what happens in this film. So on the one hand, it is a drama, and I think it's really affecting in the sense that it gives gives you um, a kind of spiraling aesthetic of the, the this events going out of control, but also that it, it actually really is tied to so much else that's going on in the not just Norwegian or European, but global yeah. contemporary well, climate. I, I think, and I haven't seen the Paul Greengrass uh, take on the subject matter, but I, I gather that he actually focuses more on Breivik. Yes. Um, which has its um, has its problems and there's already been some sort of discussion beginning to happen about that. But the, he does try to frame it, I think, within a kind of wider politics, whereas this one is very much about the experience for the, of the young people. And, and as you said, I mean, the director did do this in very in-depth consultation with the survivors and with the families of the survivors. And I think their their view of it, and certainly in the press conference in Berlin, was two things. One is, when is the right time? You know, yeah. we, we as young people want this out of our system. You know, unlike um, the quite right memorials around the First World War or the Second World War, it's like, no, no, I'm sorry, we don't want to wait 50 years. Yeah. We don't want to, we want to, look this squarely in the eye and, and frankly get out of our 18, 19, 20 year old systems if, if you possibly can, but as part of that. So there's a kind of a, a element of the film about, uh, yeah, I mean, therapy recovery for, for them. But I do think, uh, you know, the film uh, works absolutely in its own right as a, as a, as a piece of filmmaking. Um, but it did raise interesting questions for me, and I guess particularly when you're in a city like Berlin about how you remember the past. And it's almost like, you know, you have those public displays of monuments and, you know, for collective um, memorialization, uh, lest we forget type, um, as the phrase goes. And I actually think this is film in the way that Claude Landsman with Shoah is a very meticulous uh, memorial to um, the events and the, the tragedies, the Holocaust. I, I feel that this film sort of sits in that space as well. Of course, then it becomes, you know, so well, why why should people go and go and see it as a film? You know, because film isn't just isn't film about entertainment and about you know. Well, no, I mean I think there is a as Claude Landsman demonstrates there is a there is a role for film to be a collective um, remembering, um, and so I think you know very much there's lots to discuss about with this film. Which, which leads into... So there will also be um, a discussion <laughs> around this film. So on, on one of our screenings on the 30th of October at 6pm, it'll be the first of a new series that um, we're starting up in partnership with the University of West of England. Um, and this is from their philosophy and politics department um, as part of their kind of extension of their film club and in partnership with Watershed. We'll be talking about 
the films, the philosophies in them. So this first one as part of our conversations about cinema will have philosopher Dagmar Wilhelm and political theorist Enrique Tavares Furtado um, and another guest that is still to be confirmed. And they'll be talking about a lot of the kind of issues, philosophies, politics that come up from the film, making the film. I mean, there's so much to discuss. Um, and, and so that's part of that particular screening. But definitely, I mean, I agree, this is not a film that is about entertainment. Um, I think that's a a bigger topic for another time, but certainly film does a lot more than just entertain. Um, there are other versions being made about, I think, you know, this is not the only thing that will come out of this. Like you said, there's a Paul Greengrass film that will go direct to Netflix, but there's also a Swedish feature called Reconstructing Utoya, which follows five of the survivors who will speak about their escape. Um, and there's a TV series as well that will be released in Scandinavia, mm. Scandinavia before it's mm. released internationally. So it is the time in the sense that perhaps it's not the right time for some people who might not be ready for this, but it is the right time for the survivors and for the families of the victims who really wanted this story told um, and want the moment marked, mm. like you said. Yeah, as you say, the the, the interesting thing is um, how across, you know, film, television, they're trying to make sense, re really, of, sort of recent past. And I think that is something that's happening in European cinema. It's something I've noticed uh, across a number of European films, which is filmmakers really sort of trying to um, poke and prod into what does it mean to be European? What does it mean to have a, uh, be an, uh, an, uh, as we know <laughs> in the UK, what does it mean to be uh, British or Scottish or European or, you know, whatever it is? And a number of films in, in Utoya, I, I think, is, you know, trying to understand what happened there. What, what is that about Norwegian life? What is it that went on there? And an, another film that's coming up um, is Dogman, the Italian film by Matteo Garoni. Uh, people probably remember Gamora, which was another extraordinary film uh, that he, his first sort of UK, for his film which brought him to sort of wider notice, which was set in uh, the sort of slums of Naples and organized crime. Kind of in a very um, heightened neorealist sort of aesthetic. Um, but very violent and very much about the fringes, the margins of Italian contemporary life. Um, he then went on to do Tale of Tales, um, which was a kind of dark adult fairy stories adapted from 17th century uh, writings, but has now come back to the contemporary with Dogman, which is again like Gamora set on the fringes of a kind of decaying Italian town. Certainly nothing that you see in the tourist, um, <laughs> the tourist ad, uh, adverts for going to Italy. It's not Tuscany. It's not um, those th that kind of sensual beauty that one associates with the Italian uh, landscape. This is grim. Um, and yes. It's on the absolute edges of the town. Um, you know, boarded up shops. Um, but there's still a sense of community. And I think what he's trying to explore in this film is what is current Italian community. It focuses on the dogman of the title, um, who's called Marcello, played brilliantly by Marcello Fonte, who's a small, nervy guy who owns a dog grooming shop. Um, again, in the, in the, in the, beside a, a casino and beside a gambling shop, and between those is the... <laughs> Is, is getting your dogs groomed. And he has a, he, he has much more love and connection with the dogs than he, he really does with the rest of society. It, it would, or, or he finds more warmth, rather, 
in the dogs and companionship with the dogs than he does in, in the sort of wider community. And th there is a, um, his foil is um, Simon Chena, who's um, a really larger than life heavy who uses Marcello to deal drugs. Uh, but it's it's not fully the, the sort of realism of, of um, Gamora. He, he, Garoni manages to quite brilliantly mix a kind of element of a fairy tale of sort of magical quality. Um, and, but he takes you through this um, journey of, as I say, the, the margins, the fringes of Italian life to, I think, ultimately sort of reflect on what is it that's happening in Italian modern Italian life, not in any sort of didactic way. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it is a real, it is a really strong piece of cinema, but there's a group of European directors who feel as though they're really exploring what it means to live in, in Europe in their particular countries, whether it's Italy or Norway or, or, or Spain at this moment in time. And also with Dogman, uh, really uh, delighted to be um, working in partnership with uh, the London Film Festival and also a European-wide initiative, um, which is European Art Cinema Day, to bring Q&A by satellite from the London Film Festival with Matteo Garoni and the cast of Dogman. Um, so that'll be happening on the 14th of October. Also looking at kind of contemporary Europe, but actually with a, a kind of eye on the past um, and in a different way but still dealing with this idea of kind of how you memorialize something or how you mark stories or histories is a unique film that we have called Voyageurs which will be with a special Q&A. Um, it's a one-off on the 31st of October and this is from an, an artist filmmaker, May Miles Thomas, who actually made a picture about or a portrait of her mother-in-law, Erica Thomas, who died in 2004. Now, by all accounts, the kind of setup for this is that Erica Thomas was this ordinary woman. Um, four people went to her funeral, but she had three houses full of things, which May Miles Thomas then went through um, and found that all of these objects and items actually wove together a kind of remarkable story about this woman who was a Hungarian Jew who fled to Romania, came across to England, um, and how she kind of imagines the story of her life. So it's narrated by Sean Phillips, um, as a kind of personal history or a personal memoir. So it's based on historical truth in some ways, but it's a sort of imagining of history. Um, and, and so we have the wonderful opportunity to speak to May directly after the film, to ask her questions about the filmmaking, about the story, about her family, um, in, in what is really a very beautiful poetic look at the past and at personal history. And we're really lucky uh, to also have a film called Make Me Up by Rachel McLean. And she's an extraordinary Scottish artist who was representing Scotland at the Venice Biennale last year. Um, she makes, for people who are not familiar with her work, kind of candy-coloured artistry with archive audio um, and really looks at like satirizing important topics, but in a really fun and technicolour way. So this film's sort of described as part horror, part movie, part comedy, but actually it sort of defies genre and 
categorization, actually. That's probably one of the greatest strengths of it. Um, but also looks at body image, uh, contemporary feminism, art history, and the narrative that we tell art history through. A lot of this uses Kenneth Clark's Civilization um, yeah. as some of the archive audio. There's a lot of other archive audio, but that's a kind of key one in this yeah. film is that it starts with Kenneth Clark's Civilization. And one of the really remarkable things that McLean talked about was that in the original Civilization, women are pretty much entirely absent um, from the figures who have defined and led European culture. So it's all male God-given genius, the whole thing. And, and it doesn't include any female voices or any female influence in history or art history or civilization. Very male-centric idea. And yet it contains absolute thousands of images of naked women's bodies. And so McLean really picks that apart mm. and looks at what, what is the figure of, of, of women and, and, you know, what are our body images? Where do we get our body image issues from? How does contemporary feminism work? It's an absolutely fantastic, colourful delight. Um, and I just can't recommend people come see it enough, really. Now, we can't leave this October podcast without talking about uh, Nicolas Cage. No, we can't. Because we might not have Nicolas Cage coming to Watershed, but we certainly get his latest film that he's in, Mandy. Um, I mean, I did ask if he could come, but nobody wanted to bring him over. I mean, you know, if anyone listening knows how that could happen, yeah, just, you know, yeah. drop me a line. He's an expensive gigger here. <laughs> I uh, think so. <laughs> but with Mandy, you're, you're, you're going to be talking, you and Ty Singh from the Bristol Bad Film Club are going to be talking about the icon that is Nicolas Cage. We are. We're going to explore the enigma of Nicolas Cage um, from two different perspectives. So obviously Ty and I are great friends. Um, we, we have been for a long time, but Ty runs the Bristol Bad Film Club and is more into action and genre cinema, um, explosions and big budgets or badly <laughs> small budgets doing the same thing, then I'm more interested in obviously art cinema. So in the Venn diagram of where our taste crosses over and it's pretty slim pickings, um, Nicolas Cage is yeah, right at the right. center of that. And that, that really speaks to the fact that Nicolas Cage is someone who um, does straddle the art house and, um, you know, bad cinema, uh, blockbusters, you know, you name it, basically, he's made it. He's made over a hundred movies. Uh, well, I mean, he's, and he's worked with um, your David Lynch's your Paul Schrader's. Cohen Brothers. Cohen Brothers, as, 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 as well as um, directors that only Ty knows the names of. <laughs> it's true. Now, I mean, I, I'm just going to say this. For people who don't know much about Nicolas Cage, don't worry, you don't need to. We will fill you in. Um, and if you are a Nicolas Cage aficionado, then, you know, you, you can kind of come and converse with us because we've got an awful lot to talk about. I just want to say this one uh, quote from Nicolas Cage that he said in an interview with Variety to kind of give you a sense of how extreme or how in on the joke he potentially is. He says, you show me where the top is and I'll let you know whether or not I'm over it. I design <laughs> where the top is. <laughs> that, that, that reminds me of a great quote um, that some film critic gave about, uh, I think it was Jack Nicholson actually in, in The Shining, where they said, um, Nicholson goes over the top and keeps climbing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think there's something in that with Nicolas Cage as well. <laughs> I think there is. Um, so yeah, enormously looking forward to Mandy, which played at Sundance, Cannes, and a number of other film festivals already this year. Um, by all accounts, is supposed to be a really extraordinary film by Panos Cosmatos, uh, who did Beyond the Black Rainbow. It's got Andrea Riseborough in it, mm. and what is supposedly one of the best scores um absolutely the, 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 one of the final scores indeed um yes Johan Johansson the the composer of people know from arrival and 
in other films who sadly died at the, at the age of late 40s, but this this was one of his final film projects. Yeah, and one that I, I'm really looking forward to seeing and hearing. I mean, it you know, apparently has a biker gang of demons, vengeance and acts a goblin of some kind, Nicolas Cage plays a lumberjack. I mean, what more do you need? Yes, exactly. You will be, you will be nothing if not surprised by this, by this film. Um, and you can also hear Tara and Ty in the middle of their intersecting Venn diagrams, the, uh, the celebrating Nicolas Cage. For more information on films that we've discussed and events um, and everything else that's on in October, go to watershed.co.uk. That's all for this month.